Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After Lives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. Just a heads up, the following episode discusses transphobia, homophobia, racism, violence, police violence, sexual assault, and substance abuse. Take care while listening. Throughout this season of Afterlives, we covered a lot of ground, from pop culture to policy. We talked to so many incredible guests as we pieced together Laylene Polanco's story. These conversations were so enriching and expansive that we couldn't just leave them on the cutting room floor. So we're bringing them to you. I'm Raquel Willis, and this is Afterlives, the after show, a collection of bonus episodes featuring unaired excerpts of interviews with some of the brilliant folks we met this season. On this episode, filmmaker Kristen Lavelle shares the inspiration behind her award-winning documentary, The Stroll. I kind of got inspired by a talk that Martin Scorsese was doing about the importance of New York stories and New York storytelling. And I was like, what better New York story than the Meatpacking District? Our conversation expands on the history of the Meatpacking District and the ways policing in the area pushed queer and trans sex workers out. We'll also hear more from Kristen's own story. I can't even tell you, Raquel. I can't tell you the level of perseverance that it took. We've endured things that most people can't even fathom, that they're not even built for. You know what I mean? Then we'll talk with author, activist, and founder of Transgender Equity Consulting, Cecilia Gentili, 
about how she came to find her identity and her power. For me, learning that somebody else was like me, it was an explosion in my head. It was like I've been living for 17 years thinking that I was crazy. I thought, even thought that I was an extraterrestrial for a long time. I thought that I was from another planet. You know, things that we make up in our minds to, to survive, right? Plus, she opens up about her road to activism and why she's ready to pass the torch to younger generations. They're always pushing the envelope. And that's so inspiring, right? They got this. They should be able to do it. They don't need me. First up, Kristen Lavelle. Kristen is the co-director of the HBO documentary, The Stroll, an intimate portrait of the experiences shared by her and other trans women who did sex work in New York's meatpacking district from the 70s to the early 2000s. The film blew me away with its in-depth interviews and rich retelling of a history that's so often overlooked. And I wasn't alone. It was well-received by critics and received a special jury award at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. Talk about getting your tens. We heard from Kristen throughout the series as she opened up about her time on Rikers Island, the realities of anti-trans violence, and her hopes for the future of trans rights. I'm excited to share more about her career and put a brighter spotlight on her work. Let's dive in to your road to becoming a filmmaker. You talk about this in detail in The Stroll, but just give a little bit more about why it's important for Black trans folks to tell our own stories. Well, you know, I had been a subject of numerous periodicals and documentary work, and realized that I didn't have any control of my story or how the story was being told. I was just inspired to make our own films. About 12 years ago, right before the tipping point where we were seeing this increase in misrepresentation of trans people in the media, and it disgusted me because it, it, it showed that it gave us no dignity. So me and a friend, we put some material together and we did a, a YouTube documentary called Trans and Media. And it was highlighting how that violence impacts the trans community. And so I just stayed on the course. I was like, I'm going to figure out a way to tell the story. I'm going to try to get into the industry by any means necessary. So that was like going on auditions and not booking, but just to have the presence there, you know, in a time where nobody was even talking about trans issues. This was like about 2008, 2009. Eventually I started to book and I had worked on a project a few years ago called The Garden Left Behind. And that's when I started producing. I got into the Artist Academy at Lincoln Center and it was in those hallways that I was like, I have to make this film about the stroll. I needed some, I wanted to tell a New York story. And I kind of got inspired by a talk that Martin Scorsese was doing about the importance of New York stories and New York storytelling. And I was like, what better New York story than the meatpacking district? 
Absolutely. And I mean, you did a phenomenal job. It's such a gorgeous documentary. I know a little bit about the stroll just from my experiences in Atlanta. And of course, pretty much everywhere has their own stroll. And you talk so candidly about the different parts of the stroll, right? So can you tell our audience a little bit more about what and where the stroll was here in New York? The stroll was in an area called the Meatpacking District. It was on 9th Avenue and 14th Street around the Triangle Building area and the surrounding area, which we called the Back Street, which led down to the Hudson River Pier and down to Christopher Street a few blocks down. So it was a, you know, a hot spot for LGBT people to come and congregate and celebrate and meet one another in a time before cell phones, <laughs> you know, that was how community was built. And nowadays that community isn't there no more. The city has changed so drastically. You know, our culture, the soul of the city is gone. Like as a New Yorker, what do we do now? Like, <laughs> you know? And you, of course, talk to folks of different ages. It's really a, a multi-generational story. Can you talk more about when the stroll was active? Oh my gosh, the stroll, like it depends on which era, right? I like to like at least take it back to around the time before Stonewall and the reasons why Stonewall happened. Today, we see all this talk about trans bans and attacks on transgender healthcare, but that was one of the reasons why Stonewall began in the first place because they had a drag ban and were forcing trans people to wear one article of the other clothing. And it was against the law for homosexuals to consume alcohol. So these were the things that started Stonewall to begin with. But we know that Stroll had been going on maybe a couple of decades before, or maybe even longer than that. I've heard some stories about it going back at least 100 years. And we covered about 50 so years of that history. Yeah, y'all got such a good span of just the history in that particular area. So I want to take a second because I, as I was watching, I was really trying to, I guess, picture myself there. So if you indulge me for a second and close your eyes and just describe what it looked like, what it sounded like, what it smelled like the first time you saw it. I mean, to be honest, the first time I went down there, it was just this magical place. Like, there was no other place in the city like it. It's like you entered this whole new world, right? And to be a young adult, you get this sense of, like, independence and and being free. Because we were. We were coming of age. We were coming out of our teenage years and into this lifestyle that society was shunning at the time. We couldn't find employment and stuff, so there was a certain liberation in just being free, right? And breaking all the rules. And so the gritty, dark area that seemed so dangerous was just actually a safe haven for us to just be ourselves. Everyone kind of spoke to that empowerment and the joy. And then, of course, how things kind of changed over time. People became more disillusioned after numerous experiences of violence or interactions with law enforcement. So can you talk about the prevalence of of all of that struggle over time? 
Oh, I can't say that it was ever an easy journey, especially then. I was living in the movie theaters and the stroll has definitely had taken its toll on me. I was exhausted and I wanted more out of my life. I was tired of constantly being arrested and harassed by the police. At a certain point, I gave up. I threw my hands up. I thought that this is all that life has for us, that I'm going to be the age that I am now in and out of Rikers Island doing this over and over again. And I couldn't take it. I was able to clean up and get training and embark on my professional career. And it took it took a lot. It took a long time, but we're here. We're here. And how did you protect yourself throughout all of that? <sighs> you know, I was talking to Carrie and she was telling me, you know, I remember, Kristen, you used to be so standoffish and you had this, the mean face on and everything. I was like, you know, it wasn't personal, anything personal to you, but I had to be able to protect my energy. You know, I had to protect me. Like, I'm getting in and out of these cars alone. I don't know what stranger I'm going with. So I always had to have this reservedness to me. You know, like in the film, I jokingly called it Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Literally, I felt like I was going out to be the vampire slayer and have to slay vampires in order to survive, right? I I can't even tell you, Raquel. I can't tell you the level of perseverance that it took. You know what I mean? Because I've seen so many people break down. We've endured things that most people can't even fathom, that they're not even built for. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I really had to reassess myself of like, is this my life? I know that I'm a trans woman. I had to do whatever I had to do to survive by any means necessary. And that meant going in and out of Rikers Island, then that's what I had to do. And there was a time where when you first start and I was younger, I was getting community service and getting sent home. As I got older, the, the sentences got heavier. You know, now they're trying to put me away for months. You know what I mean? And so... I got tired of that because I was I was tired of constantly getting in trouble. I I I wanted better for my life and I knew that I could find better that I knew that even though I was a trans woman that life can be better. It absolutely can be and I mean you're a testament to that for so many folks. So thank you for keeping going. So Thinking about this timeline, of course, you so masterfully weave kind of what's happening politically, of course, with like the change of the guard between mayors from Giuliani's broken windows, policing, and then, of course, Bloomberg's gentrification, like overdrive. Can you take us through the things that transformed how you and others on the stroll were able to exist? during that time of immense change. Everything goes off about Giuliani. Even though he was systemically trying to shut down trans and LGBT nightlife in New York City, the arrests weren't as severe and the consequences weren't as severe as they had become during the Bloomberg era. As I was saying, like when Giuliani was the mayor, we would get arrested and we would get community service. When we got older, though, that's when they started to really slam down on us. The vice squad is out now during the Bloomberg era, and they're just snatching you with impunity when they're, like, trumping up the charges so that you get a longer stay in, in Rikers Island than being on the street. And the point was to discourage you 
to the point that you don't no longer want to be there. And unfortunately, I was one of the girls that <sighs> they beat on a lot in terms of like snatching me and and just sending me to Rikers Island. And so there was a big difference in the different mayors on how policing was handled. And I say still that after 20-something years since Giuliani and 9-11 and stuff, you know, the impacts of them still persist today. We don't have trans clubs and nightlife like we used to. The village is a totally different place now. You cannot go there. You do not see people congregating there like we used to. Our community has still not recovered from the effects of them. You know what I mean? Like, it's where, where, where do we go to congregate? Where are our clubs? We used to have clubs and places that we used to go to. They're very hard to find now. You know, the trans and LGBT community has still not recovered fully. Right. I mean, there's this beautiful scene in the documentary where you're just reminiscing on what the High Line used to look like. And of course, the meatpacking districts in general. Can you talk a little bit more about what it used to be like, what that liveliness was, and how it feels like now to walk through there? I mean, what they did there is cute. It's beautiful, you know? But it still just doesn't have the allure that the old meatpacking district had. It was just like... I don't know. You had the meatpacking district, you had the pier, and then going down to Christopher Street. And that was our area, you know, to, to frolic, <laughs> to frolic and, you know, and so it had this, this, the grit to it. You would see the leather daddies, you would see the girls decked out. There would be hundreds of trans women everywhere as they were slowly closing the stroll when ramping up on policing, you would only see like maybe five or six girls running along the back streets, but you wouldn't see like the 50 or 60 girls on the corner, 14th or 9th, or at the Triangle building, all the girls, you know, in their garbs, flashing the, the drivers at the bus stop, or Josie strutting her stuff down the middle of the block and just jumping in cars. It, it's not like that no more. It was, this, it was a certain beauty to it, to just see all these beautiful trans women just being themselves and out in the streets. And now it's it's like a needle in the haystack now to find another girl. Like, it's weird. I wanted to talk a little bit more about visibility. So can you talk about what it's like in this moment? And of course, also just how visibility can be a trap for trans women of color. Historically, we have always been here you know, and trans, this is not this new thing. And some people are confused to think that this is just something that happened within the past few years and everybody's running to take hormones because they see that trans people are on television or something. So now there's a takeover and everybody's scared. You know? <laughs> so it's important to tell these stories, right? To show that we have history, that these things have been going on systematically for a very long time. We're fucking tired of it. You know, we just want to live our lives. We don't want to be sitting here over explaining ourselves to you over and over again. Just let me be. Like, I don't care what you and your wife and your kids do. You know, like, don't worry about what I'm doing. Just let me live my life. I want to work. I want to have a home. I want to drive a car. I want to like, you know, I want to be happy too. Just let me be happy too. 
you know? All right. I think that's it. You shut it down, Miss <laughs> Kristen. Kristen's role as a storyteller is so necessary, and so is her perspective on New York City. In just a moment, we'll hear from another New Yorker who's changing the way people view sex work and trans rights. He said, no, I'm not a boy. Stop calling me a boy. And I was three and a half. I've been trans for 48 years. I'm not a face. This face has been here for a while. <laughs> trans icon, Cecilia Gentili. Stick with us. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now 
Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Cecilia Gentili was a recurring guest on Afterlife. She started Transgender Equity Consulting in 2019 after serving as the Director of Policy at GMHC, the world's first HIV-AIDS service organization. She's also the author of a memoir titled Fault Us, Letters to Everyone in My Hometown Who Isn't My Rapist. As a Latina immigrant and a formerly incarcerated sex worker, Cecilia has a very personal connection with Laylene's legacy. We heard a lot about that in our series. Today, I wanted to share more of Cecilia's unique and inspiring journey through life, from her childhood to her work today as an outspoken trans activist. I was just revisiting Falta's, your amazing literary contribution. It's so perfectly in your voice with all the humor and the irreverence and snark. But I'm wondering if you can talk about your experience growing up. And then, of course, just, I think, the intersection of finding your transness and womanhood within Latinidad. I grew up in the 70s in Argentina, at the moment, the country was in the process of getting into what ended up being the most tragic chapter of history of my country, which was the dictatorship. So, you know, it was the 70s. It was no internet. I'm from a very, very small town. It was no trans people that I knew of. So I remember at age three and a half, I don't remember, actually, my mom told me, it was when I was three and a half years old. She was trying to get me down from a tangerine tree. I love tangerines. I always love tangerines. So she was trying to get me down from a tangerine tree. So she would say, little boy, come down. Little boy, come down. And I would say, no. Mm. So then she asked me, what do you mean, no? You're not coming down? And I said, no, I'm not a boy. Stop calling me a boy. And I was three and a half. So, you know, when mm. people now say trans people are a TikTok thing, a face, but that is, you know, I'm like, I've been trans for 48 years. I told my mom 48 mm. years ago, and, you know, I'm not a face. This face has been here for a while. <laughs> so that was my first experience telling people that my gender was more expansive than what they expected. And from the beginning, you know, it was a hard experience. Like my mom really didn't have the information to deal with me. You know, as you can see in the book, it's a lot of somehow recrimination towards my mom, but it's also a lot of understanding that she didn't have, she didn't have any of the things that she needed to help me, right? And uh, I tried to hold her accountable, but at the same time, give her, forgiveness. So, because they didn't know, nobody knew. We didn't know what a trans person was. It was really hard because I was a very feminine person. I was someone who was understood as a boy who lived in a very feminine way. Mm -hmm. And it was 
it was difficult. I think people fear things that they don't know and they didn't know trans people and they didn't know me. And because they fear me, they discriminate me and some of them, they even hate me, I guess. But that's another testament of the resilience of trans people, right? I, I am a testament that we go through so much and it's just a testament that we are strong people. We have to be. It's not a way to be trans and not to be strong, right? We shouldn't be asking people to have to be strong, but somehow we all are. So growing up was hard. I didn't have the words or the understanding. I kind of identify as the gay men, like kind of like very feminine gay men. That was what it was. I was like, this is the closest to how I feel. But then when I was 17 years old, I moved to the big city to go to university. And I met the first trans person that I ever met in my life. And I don't know if people can understand. Most people do know somebody who is like them in life, right? But for me, learning that somebody else was like me at age 17, it was an explosion in my head. It was like I've been living for 17 years thinking that I was crazy. Even though that I was an extraterrestrial for a long time, I thought that it was from another planet. You know, things that we make up in our minds to, to survive, right? And when I met her, it was this discovery of belonging. Somebody else is like me. So when I met this trans woman, I realized that I was not a gay man, that I was a woman and that it was possible. It was a natural thing. It's, you can be you, right? It was something that gives you permission to be. And I started transitioning. And because at the time, we were already in a democracy in Argentina. Things were changing. It was an explosion in culture and ways to identify. I started my transition. But even Argentina was in a much better space. It was not enough space to be trans and something else. Like being trans mm. was everything that you could be, right? If, if you couldn't be trans and a businesswoman, you couldn't be trans and a tennis player, you couldn't be trans and a student, right? Not that now you can, and maybe a little bit more, right? But at the time, it was no way that you could do that. Maybe you could be trans in a, in a hairstylist, I guess, or a makeup artist. That's that association that somehow I hate and love, right? So I decided to stop going to school Plus, because I started my transition at the time, sex work came with it. And street-based sex work doesn't really leave much room to anything else. It's, it's, it's hard work, you know. So I tried to be trans and work in the streets and go to school, but I couldn't do all of it. It was just too much. So I didn't continue with my career. I could be a, a French horn player. Uh, now, <laughs> I always say I could be a miserable cis gay man horn player, but I am a joyful trans woman. 
Yes. <laughs> I I feel like I've had a lot of those conversations too as I hit 30. I'm like, and even talking to my mom, she's just like, yeah, I couldn't imagine your life any other way. This was your path. More from Cecilia about her experience discovering activism and advocacy after the break. Every profession has the risk of harming you. And everything that comes from capitalism of like working so hard has the risk of harming you. And we don't criticize it, but it's easy for people to criticize sex work. So I decided to make it my mission in life to try to change that to the best of my ability. We'll be right back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, 
start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Afterlives. We've been hearing from trans activist and author Cecilia Gentili. Let's jump right back in. So let's talk about the LGBT center. Can you paint the scene of finding that center? Yes, I went to jail. I started detoxing from heroin in jail. It was terrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, From jail, I went to deportation detention. And because I'm trans, they tried to put me with cis woman and cis woman didn't want me to be there. Thank you, cis woman. And they put me with cis men and it was bad for me and for my safety. So they let me out with an ankle bracelet. They let me out with an ankle bracelet and they're like, you have to go to treatment. I went to detox first and then I went to 28 days and then I went to long-term treatment. I did 17 months. I'm in treatment. I'm in treatment. My counselor is like, I never had a trans person before. I don't know anything about trans people. I don't know if I can help you, right? So she's like, what about if you go to the LGBT center? And I was like, whatever. When you are in treatment, like, you know, I used to smoke cigarettes, so you can't smoke. So every opportunity that you have to get out of treatment is an opportunity to smoke a cigarette. So I was like, I'll just go to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> I got you. And the first time I had an escort because, you know, when you are early in treatment, you can't leave the facilities without an escort. So I went with an escort. I remember for my escort, it was like not about escorting me. She was going to meet with her boyfriend somewhere in the city. So we all we all did the first trip to, the, to 13th Street at the LGBT Center for the wrong reasons. Me to smoke and her to, to meet with her boyfriend. <laughs> And I went to my first counseling session and my counselor was Christina Herrera. And I have never met a trans woman that was not a sex worker. Uh... Never in my life met a trans woman that was not a sex worker. So without going into, you know, the peer counseling sessions that she gave me, which was a lot of support, just the fact of knowing her, just the fact of coming across her was, oh, I can do other things that are not sex work, right? Uh-huh. Just because she modeled it to me. And I think I was ready to leave uh, sex work, which is, you know, I really didn't leave, fully leave sex work ever. But to kind of like explore other things, it was because of her. It was because of her, right? So I went to the LGBT center. I met the first, you know, trans woman that I knew outside the the sex trade. And they sent me to a meeting, you know, and I opened the door and it's this room with about 60 trans women. It was no space for people. It was just a shock for me to be in a room with so many trans women that were not in the street trying to get a client, right? They were there to talk about their transness. And I was like, this is crazy. 
<laughs> I love it and I hate it. And I was also introduced to the idea of trans women looking, let's put it this way, I'm Latina, you're trans, you need a nose job, you need mm. long hair, you need hips, you need boobs, you, need, you know, that was my idea. That was, that was yeah, my yeah. idea of transness. And then I got there and I realized that all these, many of these trans women didn't have any of those things and I came to understand that transness is who you are and not how you look. And it was like, I was like, what the fuck is happening here, right? It took me a minute. It took me a minute to understand all of that. And then they offered me to do an internship at the center and I take an internship and I... <laughs> I remember I created a workshop, my first workshop for this group of trans women was... <laughs> I made this, I made this drawing of like transition is from going to point A to point B. And all the trans women were like, no, sis. <laughs> Some trans people are somewhere else. There's no point B to go to. And I was like, so they ended up giving me a workshop. So my first workshop, they ended up giving me to me my workshop. It was great. I love it. I, it changed my life. In so many ways, right? That's beautiful. I didn't know all of those details and you just so beautifully like paint the scene. I want to kind of juxtapose that workshop scene <laughs> with baby Cecilia, the organizer. And yeah. I'm curious about how you came to see your power. You've done so much, and I guess for the sake of this conversation, how that journey led you into founding Decrim and why? You know, people think that because my result into the criminal justice system and all the terribleness that I experienced came from either sex work or drug use, right? But kind of like put me in a position where I am... Um, against it. I'm really not. It's not like I'm just not against it. I am a huge defender of people who are engaged in the sex trade or use drugs, right? Because I do understand that these two things that are highly criminalized are not most of the times the result of choice, right? And sometimes it is, right? If, if I choose right now to go and and have sex with somebody for money that would be a choice because i can be making money in so many ways right but when i engage in in sex work i didn't have any other choices Uh that was my only choice right and how much is a choice when you don't have other choices if it's the only choice right so Uh i have found empowerment in the work that I did for many years. And like, I think that's part of the problem with sex work is that surrounded by this extreme veil of shame. And it's not just because of sex work, it's shame about sex, right? And if you, if something as shameful as sex is used as work, it's even more shameful, right? 
So mm-hmm. I found empowerment. I found a lot of empowerment in a profession that allowed me to survive, allowed me to thrive, gave me a, a wonderful community. And of course, it was hard work, right? I met a psychiatrist on the phone for two years through COVID. And now I had to go and see him in person. It was the first time that I saw him in person. And we had a conversation and then he's like, you know, what did you do before you do consulting? I was like, I was a sex worker. He gave me this long talk about like sex work is a hard profession. And I was like, being a psychiatrist must be a hard profession, right? He's like, yeah, but what I mean is like, I don't put my body into psychiatrists. I'm like, well, your body's here. It's in front of me. You're using it for this. He's like, yeah, but what I mean is that if I have a daughter, I didn't want my daughter to be a sex worker. And I was like, well, trust me, if I had a son, I didn't want him to be a psychiatrist. He said, but what's the risk of being a psychiatrist? I don't know. But you deal with, with a lot of people. You deal with a lot of trauma. It must be hard going home, listening to people trauma all day. It must be hard to be with people who may be in unstable situations and may get violent, right? Said, risk, every profession has risk. Like, why do we keep thinking of sex work as the only profession that has risk? I am not saying that sex work is easy, but what profession is not easy? right? Uh Every profession has the risk of harming you, right? Working has the risk of harming you. Living in this capitalistic world and everything that comes from capitalism of like working so hard has the risk of harming you. And we don't criticize it, but it's easy for people to criticize sex work or stigmatize sex work. So I decided to make it my mission in life to try to change that to the best of my ability. And that's why I support services for sex workers community. And we have the coin clinic where like every sex worker can get medical services, mental health services, all their medicines, everything is free. They pay zero dollars. So I focus on services. I focus a lot on the stigmatization of the of the profession uh, through social media and creating materials. And most importantly, I focus in decriminalization of sex work and changing policy and legislation that have created a system of criminalization that had affected us so badly historically. I love that whole exchange with the psychiatrist. I think that's so real. And how do young trans people inspire you? Oh, I live for them. I live for them. I also, I'm an elder, but I'm in a consistent, consistent intentional effort to look and feel young and relevant. <laughs> so yeah, I am an elder, but you may see me dressing like a BTS. Right, in an effort to kind of like feel relevant and and cool, right? I got you. Um, but it it is because like you know trans kids are so amazing. Like you know my children are beautiful. Like you know Gogo Graham, Gia Love, Rio. You know 
those are my kids and they're doing amazing things and they're always mm-hmm. teaching me. They keep me young because they're always pushing the envelope. And that's so inspiring, right? And it's also, I've been getting lately a sense, a peaceful sense of like, I can retire, you know? They're great. They got this. They should be able to do it. They don't need me. So I'm inspired by youth. I'm inspired by all of them. I love it. I love it. Cecilia and Kristen are both living keepers of queer and trans history, and their stories are so vital. Definitely follow them on social media, pick up a copy of Cecilia's book, Fault Us, and watch The Stroll on Max. Thank you so much for listening to Afterlives. You can find this episode and future ones on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think. After Lives is a production of iHeart Podcasts and the Outspoken Podcast Network in partnership with School of Humans. I'm your host and creator, Raquel Willis. Dylan Hoyer is our senior producer and scriptwriter. Our associate producer is Joey Pat. Sound design and engineering by Daisy Makes Radio Productions and Jess Kreinchich. Story editing by Aaron Edwards and Julia Furlan. Fact checking by Savannah Hugley. Our show art is by Makai Baldwin. Score composed by Wazi Murray. Our production manager is Daisy Church. Executive producers include me, Raquel Willis, and Jay Brunson from the Outspoken Podcast Network, Michael Alder June and Noel Brown from iHeart Podcasts, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley from School of Humans, and The Cats Company. School of Humans. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my hosts as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.